Hey, sexy humans. You didn't think I'd forget my wonderful patrons, did you? Of course not. I wanted to take the opportunity to talk about yet another of my favorite historical people. As if that's a radical direction for this show to be going in. Uh, this person is another woman, because that's the trend de jouer, but mainly because I already have the notes. This absolute girl boss didn't make my other lists, because there's some fierce competition there, but she is just perfect for a bonus show one-shot. So here we go. She is smart and fierce and intelligent and ruthless and adjectives, but I want to talk about her mainly because she is one of the most pragmatic people you're ever going to find in history. She is cold logic personified. Artemisia of Halicarnassus. Artemisia is one of my favorite historical characters of all time because she is one of the most ruthlessly intelligent people you're ever going to come across. You know how when you're watching a movie and all the characters do something so dumb that it just kills your suspension of disbelief? I'm Boba Fett. Well, Artemisia of Halicarnassus is the complete opposite of that. She is the living avatar of sensible decision-making. But before that, the usual groundwork. I honestly tried to make this show short. It's not in me. I'm not capable of it. So here we go. I'm just making sure that you're up to speed with all the players here. So Halicarnassus was a famous city in antiquity and classical Greece. It is currently the city of Bodrum in Turkey, but that whole area, Anatolia, has been hotly contested for as long as there's been humanity to hotly contest it. The city was, reportedly, founded in the before times by Dorian Greeks, and it's generally accepted to be a Greek city. And that's about as far as I want to get into Greek diaspora in this show. It is a topic for another time that is just way too complicated. I'm just throwing it out there in case you want to research on your own time. Halicarnassus is kind of a cultural fulcrum. It's not usually at the epicenter of events, but it has its fingers in everything that seems to happen in classical history. It's sort of always there in the background. Halicarnassus is the random south guy of history. It's the city where the famous storyteller Herodotus is from, for instance. Uh, it was an important part of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. It was the scene of one of Alexander the Great's uh, greatest triumphs. And it was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus. Once upon a time, there was a dude by the name of Mausolus of Halicarnassus, and he was the king of Halicarnassus for a time. And when he died, his wife, his sister, and his daughters commissioned a tomb for him, the likes of which the world has never seen the likes of which. Today, I have a business empire the like of which the world has never seen the like of which. And this tomb was named after him. And ever after, an elaborate tomb became known as a mausoleum because of Mausolus of Halicarnassus. Mausoleum. So that's why things be like they do. But mainly what you need to know is that Halicarnassus was a Greek city in modern Turkey that was part of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. That's the important bit. I've covered the Achaemenids before because it's one of my favorite periods of history, but again, I'll give you the essential dot points. In the year 570 BCE, a guy by the name of Kurash 
comes out of absolutely nowhere, gets an army together, and conquers most of the mightiest kingdoms of the ancient world. We're talking Assyria, we're talking Babylon, we're talking Medea. He just wipes the floor with them. We know this guy now as Cyrus the Great, and he creates the Achaemenid Persian Empire, which stretched from the Hellespont into... Well, we don't exactly know how far it stretched because we don't have the records, but we do know that the borders extended at least as far as Pakistan and the Sahara. It was the biggest empire in history up until that point. This empire contained a significant percentage of the entire people of the planet at the time. It was freaking huge. And in the year 499 BCE, out of nowhere, the Greeks decided to pick a fight with the biggest empire on the planet. There was another group of Greek diaspora known as the Ionians. If you remember learning about the different types of decorative columns in primary school, then these names are going to be familiar to you. The Doric and Ionic, that's Dorian and Ionian. So those guys came up with the columns. Corinth had their own thing going on, but those are your column types. So these Ionian Greeks are also a part of the Persian Empire. Which, as far as these things go, was a pretty sweet deal back in the day. The Persians were probably the most forgiving empire in ancient history to be a part of. If you're going to be in an empire, you wanted to be in the Persian Empire. But keep in mind that's grading on a curve that includes some truly heinous people in history, like the Assyrians and the Mongols, so it's all relative. But still, Persia was, by and large, pretty tolerant. And usually I just assume that you guys understand my take on history is wildly partisan, but even I need to preface all of this by saying that I am rampantly pro-Achaemenid Persian, and not just because I'm naturally contrarian, they are legitimately a pretty cool empire. The Achaemenid Persians had a system that was known as the satrap, or satrapy, and it was a system that they invented. If you got absorbed into the Persian Empire either willingly or through conquest, the Persians would put one of their own guys in charge of your city or country or state or whatever. And that guy was a satrap, basically a governor. And he would run the province in the name of the Persian emperor, the king of kings. And that was pretty much it. It was in name only. The Persians didn't really care what you did, just as long as you were loyal to the emperor. As long as you paid your taxes and you provided troops when you were asked, the Persians really didn't give a shit what you did with your territory. I mean, you do you, boo. You want to run your government this way? Sure. You want this religion instead of Zoroastrianism? Whatever. You want to make it illegal to eat pigs? Then, you know, that's cool. Just pay your taxes. We don't care. We're a pretty hands-off system of government. And for the time, that was pretty awesome. There were much, much worse systems to live under in the world at the time. And it worked well for almost everyone living in this system. There were happy times all around. Pretty much everyone liked being part of the Persian Empire, except for the Ionian Greeks. And the Babylonians, but those guys were just anarchists. They rebelled against everyone, even other Babylonians, so we're not counting them. The only people who really chafed under the Persian Empire were the Ionian Greeks. And it wasn't the Ionian Greeks so much as it was one particular Ionian Greek. And it wasn't so much that he didn't want to be a part of the Persian Empire anymore, it's just that he was an absolute dickwad, and he feared that the Persians were going to replace him with someone who was actually good. 
So basically, everything that's about to come in this story happens because one guy was scared of getting justifiably fired for incompetence. This guy's name was Aristogoras. He's a very famous character in history, but that's another tale another time. The essential dot points is that the first truly international war in history is about to kick off because this guy, Aristogoras, didn't want to get Scott Morrison. And this appears to be an open and shut case so to speak, of how not to weld, with the PM lifting his mask mid-welding. So Aristogoras, to save his own job, kickstarts a rebellion within the Persian Empire. The Ionian Greeks revolt from the Persians. And this particular rebellion is something that I am absolutely saving for more shows in the future. But what you need to know is that the rebellion ultimately gets crushed by the Persians, because that's what tends to happen to rebellions. The Empire usually wins. It's not always Star Wars-y. These things do tend to fail on the reg. This will be a day long remembered. It has seen the end of Kenobi, and will soon see the end of the rebellion. So the Ionian Greeks revolt, and the Persians come in, and they crush the rebellion, and they execute the people involved in it, because that's what you did back in the day. If you don't punish rebellions, then you tend to get more rebellions. I went into this at length in the other Persian show that I did, but it is worth keeping in mind. America. So the Persians crush the rebels, because that's what you got to do. But because the Persians were awesome, they said, all right, now we've sorted all of this rebellion nonsense. We've actually had a look at things and we've heard your concerns. And we have decided that moving forward, We are going to be more lenient on you in the future. We don't want any more rebellions to be happening. And we're even going to let you have this fabled democracy that you keep talking about, because we know you like that so much. So you can do your democracy thing under the satrapy. All we want in return is a small tribute to the Empire every year. That's it, and you can do you. All is forgiven. So Ionia actually came out of this even better than they went into it, because... The Persians, and I cannot stress this enough, were such a tolerant people at the time. And that might have been when the entire story ended, except for one little loose end that needed to be tied up on the Persian side of things. The Ionians didn't revolt on their own. So let's wind back a bit. In this period, Greece isn't actually Greece. Up until the advent of Alexander the Great, Greece is actually a whole bunch of independent city-states and not one united country. So it's not Greece as a collective. There's Athens and Sparta and Thebes and Thrace and Megaris and Phocis and Naxos. You get the idea. And sometimes they ally, but usually they fight amongst themselves. So there's no real united Greece as a nation. So the Ionians were chafing under the Persians, and they rebelled, and, you know, we don't want Persians anymore, we're going to burn down some temples and rebel. And then the alcohol wore off, and it dawned on them very quickly that this was an exceptionally stupid idea. A small city declaring war on the biggest empire in the world? Well, okay, we didn't really think this one through, did we? So the Ionians very quickly realized that they were going to get utterly slaughtered. This wasn't even a contest. So they sent out some requests for help from all of the other Greek city-states. 
And they send uh, an ambassador to all of these states, you know, the kind of deal. Fellow Greeks, my brothers in Zeus, please come help us against these tyrannical Persians. And almost universally, the rest of the Greek world told the Ionians to go and fuck themselves. The response from all of these Greek city-states was, you guys are absolute idiots, you brought this on yourselves, fuck around and find out. The responses ranged from a polite but firm no from Halicarnassus, right up to the Spartans releasing the hounds on an Ionian ambassador. They literally told him to be out of the city by sundown or they would tear him apart. Nobody wanted any part of this rebellion because of how ridiculously stupid it was. Why would you poke the Persian bear? In the end, there were only two places that actually sent help to Ionia, and that was Athens and Eritrea. And that's mostly because they got conned into doing it. The Ionian ambassador was a bit of a huckster. So the only two cities that sent help to this rebellion was Athens and Eritrea. And nobody else. And because there were no reinforcements, well, even if there were reinforcements, it wouldn't have mattered, but because there was such a small amount of Greeks actually fighting, the Ionian revolt was crushed. But because these two foreign cities sent aid to the rebels, the Persians were honor-bound to go and give these two cities a spanking for being so naughty. The Persians couldn't leave this alone. It was a slight on their honor. They had to go to Greece and fuck these guys up. And I need to stress how utterly insignificant Greece was to Persia at this point in history. Greece likes to think of themselves as the center of the world, but from a Persian perspective, it was a backwater collective of hicks and rubes that had no strategic importance whatsoever. Greece was so far away that it didn't really matter. It's just that the Persian honor dictated that you had to go and punish them for being naughty. The Persians didn't want to go over there. It wasn't really worth the hassle, but it was an honor thing. And you know how honor things get. And that's how we got the largest global conflict in history right up until the First World War. And what happens next is that the First Greco-Persian War happens, which is something that I am absolutely not going to get into here. But it culminates in the famous Battle of Marathon, where, for mysterious and disputed reasons, the Greeks won the unlikeliest of victories against the much larger, much more fancied Persian army. And I won't take it away from the Greeks, this was a very famous battle, a spectacular win, well played. But it does need to be said, the Persians burned their way all the way up through Greece, right up until they got to Marathon. There was a series of battles that the Persians just wiped the floor with, so the scorecard went from Persia 100, Greece 0, to Persia 100, Greece 1. But after Marathon, the Persians realized that the Greeks were better fighters than they'd initially estimated. They were putting up much more resistance than they initially thought. So they decided to cut bait and return to Persia instead of pursuing a strategy that obviously wasn't working out as they'd hoped. So they decided to retreat back to Persia and figure out a way to do it properly and come back and do it that way. This is, historically, one of the greatest examples of all time in how to beat the sunk cost fallacy. But instead of celebrating the absolute boss logic of the Persians in this situation, in not throwing good money after bad, in not chasing a bad investment, it ended up that the Greeks absolutely let all of this go to their heads, and they started bragging about how they were the greatest people of all time and the epicenter of civilization. 
And because it's their version of history that we got written down and translated, we've all been coached from childhood to believe the lie that they've been peddling for nearly 3,000 years. I'm doing the best at this. Did the Greeks really win the first Greco-Persian War, or is it just that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on a certain point of view? A certain point of view? And remember that the Persians didn't have a beef with Greece as a whole. It was Athens and Eritrea specifically. And the Athenians managed to push the Persians back at Marathon, sure. But the other city that the Persians went to punish? Eritrea? Yet yeah, that city's not there anymore. The, the Persians removed it from the map. That's something that Greeks don't like to talk about. Top 10 facts about the Greco-Persian Wars. Herodotus hates number 3. Eritrea, gone. So there's a bit of a setback at Marathon, and the Persians go home, and they prepare for round two. And they spend decades preparing an army to go back for Operation Greece 2 Electric Boogaloo. And they decide to bring in everyone in the Persian Empire to fight this war. And I mean, everyone. Remember how big the Persian Empire is? Well, all of that is now pointed directly at Greece. And Greece has no idea what it's in for. While the Greeks are strutting about thinking that their mighty phalanxes are unstoppable, the Persians are going to be throwing everything at them. Oh, you think your phalanxes are all that? You guys ever heard of a rhinoceros? Because you're about to. And the Persians put together the largest amphibious invasion in history right up until the invasion of Normandy. So the Persian king, Xerxes, is getting the crew together. He's oceans three millioning it. And everyone in the Persian Empire is obligated to send troops. There are only two terms on the Persian deal, and this is one of them. You've got to pay your taxes, and you've got to send troops. And the city-state of Halicarnassus is part of the Persian Empire, so that deal applies. Halicarnassus was ruled at this point by a queen, Artemisia. God, how long did it take to get where I originally started the show? Like, what, 20 minutes? Well done, Demo. Most of what we know about Artemisia comes from Herodotus, who is, and say it with me now, absolutely full of shit. But Herodotus had a huge hard-on for Artemisia. She is the only woman in any of his writings that he ever gives the time of day to. She's the only woman that he gives the appellate Andrea too, and Andrea in Greek means courage or courageous, so according to Herodotus, it's Artemisia the courageous, which is usually only reserved for people like Achilles. And while we should always assume that Herodotus was absolutely full of shit, because he was, we have to be extra skeptical of him when it comes to the Greco-Persian Wars in general, and Halicarnassus in particular, because Herodotus was born in Halicarnassus. He was Halicarnassian. I don't know the denim for Halicarnassus, but he was one of them. He was born a Persian. And then he decided to attempt to overthrow the government, which is always a good move. And then he had to get the fuck out of Dodge before he got tortured to death. So we always need to remember that Herodotus absolutely had an axe to grind against the Persians in general and Halicarnassus in particular. The historian Plutarch, who comes along a little bit later, he writes a book of his own, which is titled On the Malice of Herodotus, 
which is basically a diss track of Herodotus pointing out all the ways in which Herodotus is full of shit. So when even ancient historians are piling onto you, you might not be the most reliable source. But that being said, a shitty source of history is better than no source of history, so here we are, both in terms of this story and me doing a podcast. So King Xerxes is rounding up troops for his war, and he goes to Halicarnassus and he says to Artemisia, alright, so we're going to go to war with the Greeks, and we need you to send some troops to help. What can you bring to the table? And Artemisia responds with... Well, I can't really offer much. We're not a military city. We're more of a trade city. We're merchants, not soldiers. The best I can do is I can send some ships to help your navy. And Xerxes says, yep, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. That's great. We always need ships. That's, that's awesome. Send your ships. And Artemisia says, well, here's the thing. We only have five ships that we can send. And remember, this is the largest invasion in history. It has almost a million people in it. It has thousands and thousands of ships. And Halicarnassus is offering to send a grand total of five ships. And Xerxes says, yeah, that's cool. Just send five. That's fine. Whatever. It's more about the show of support than anything else. Five is fine. Just throw them on the pile. And then Artemisia says, but also... I have a stipulation of my own. I don't like the idea of any Persian people being in charge of my ships. I don't really trust Persians in charge of my ships. I know all about ships. So I'm sending all five of my ships, but I demand that you let me lead them personally. I have to be the admiral of my own ships. And Xerxes, the king of kings, the despotic tyrant that he is, the arch villain of Greek history says, yeah, that's cool, whatever. Five ships in total, and you lead them personally, whatever, I'm happy with that, all good. Remember, all of this is happening because the Greeks considered the Persians to be overbearing, dictatorial control freaks. And Xerxes is just, yeah, whatever, sure. And so Artemisia of Halicarnassus goes to the Second Greco-Persian War with a grand total of five ships under her personal command because the incredibly evil King Xerxes despotically agree to all of her demands instantly. It's such a tyrannical empire, those Persians. Oh god, we chafe under their control, don't we? Now, as for Artemisia herself, her reasons for doing this were several. Firstly, Halicarnassus was part of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. To refuse Xerxes' request would be to declare open rebellion against the Persians, which doesn't end well for anyone ever in the history of mankind. It's a great way to get yourself tortured to death. So she's not about that. But we also need to consider that Halicarnassus was happy to be part of the Persian Empire. Because being part of the Persian Empire was not the worst thing in the world. All they had to do was send money every year and troops from time to time. And other than that, they were left alone. They were protected by the Persians. This was a fantastic deal. Because the Persian Empire, it was stable. It was economically viable. It was just a good place to be. The Greeks at the time, with the possible exception of the Spartans were a bunch of bickering aristocrats who were all vying for power on their own, and they were always either at war with each other or at war with themselves. It was utter chaos. Outside of the Delian League, nobody actually wanted a Greek system of government. This democracy thing, it was crazy to everyone else in the world. Look at the chaos that's in the Greek system. 
Today, we treat democracy as this sacred, revered system of government, but back then it was just a whole bunch of rich people pretending to care about the common man while fucking them from... Hang on a second. Not that I'm advocating for a new empire or anything, but it is always worth looking at the lessons of history. Maybe it is rhyming a little bit. But back then... Having the Greeks say to people in the Persian Empire, hey, you should try our system of democratic government, it's great, would be like the people of Greece today saying to China, hey, you should try our economic system, it's going gangbusters. People were not buying it. It wasn't like the Greeks were going to liberate everyone from the Persians because these people didn't want liberating. And the final reason that Artemisia, Queen of Halicarnassus, decided to throw in with the Persians instead of her ethnic cousins was her pragmatism. Artemisia looked at the numbers and decided that Greeks were going to get absolutely curb-stomped in this war. She wanted to be on team winning, so she signed up. So Artemisia takes her five ships, and she starts sweeping the seas clean of the Greek navy. Well, I say Greek navy, essentially it was just the Athenian navy, Thebes didn't have one, and the Spartans are always incredibly overrated and everyone else in Greece was actually on Team Persia, so the Athenians were the only ones with an actual navy. So Artemisia is cleaning up the Athenian navy, and she proves to everyone why she wanted to be in command of her own ships. This woman is one hell of an admiral. What gets lost in the pro-Peloponnesian narrative is the absolute swathe of destruction that the Persians carved on their way to Greece, And Artemisia was a huge part of that. She was just a wolf pack on the seas, hunting down Greek ships. She was an exceptionally good admiral. And the Persian navy just has victory after victory after victory after victory until we get to the Battle of Artemisium. Now, the names here are going to get a little bit confusing. We've got our girl, Artemisia, fighting a battle at a place called Artemisium. Artemis was the Greek goddess of hunting, so a lot of names are based on her, so that's why we have so many Artemis-based names. We have Artemisia, the person, fighting at Artemisium, the place. Now, in the Second Greco-Persian War, the entire Greek plan to deal with the Persian invasion was to delay the Persians until someone could think of a better plan. That's it. The idea was to hold off the Persians at two strategic choke points, one on land and the other at sea. The sea portion was the Battle of Artemisium. The land part of it, you've probably heard of before. It was at a little place called Thermopylae. And I'll always take a moment to point out how ridiculous it is that Thermopylae gets remembered like it does. I know Xerxes was actually present at the location overseeing the whole thing, but just imagine with me for a moment that Xerxes wasn't there and someone was bringing him a report of what happened at the Battle of Thermopylae. Oh, bad news out of Thermopylae, sire. The battle did not go as we'd thought. Uh, Really? What happened? Did we lose? Well, no, we won, actually. So what's the problem? Well, we took more casualties than we were expecting. Oh, that's not ideal. How many casualties are we talking? How many men did we lose? Did we lose, like, 50,000 guys? Uh, well, no, it was actually more like 20,000, and those are Herodotus numbers, so maybe, like, 10 guys. Okay, so... What's the bad part here? I'm not seeing the problem. Did the Greeks get away? Uh, no, actually, we slaughtered them. 
I see. So the Spartan king got away, did he? Uh, again, sir, no. We actually have his head right here. I'm, I'm not seeing the problem here. What, what's the big problem with Thermopylae? Well, we were slightly delayed. We expected to take Thermopylae by Monday afternoon, but it ended up being more like Thursday. So we were delayed a couple of days. And then Xerxes would have said, Three days? That's nothing. It took us three months just to get here. Why are we concerned about three days? We wiped out the Greek army. We killed the Spartan king. I have no doubt that Thermopylae will be forever remembered throughout history as a mighty Persian victory. And Thermopylae was part of a two-stage battle plan. That was the land part, as I said. The other part was at sea, at the sea battle of Artemisium. And Artemisium went pretty much the same way that Thermopylae did. There was a Greek navy stationed at a choke point, hoping to hold off the Persians for just a little while. And they did slightly better than the land troops did, but it was the same deal, the same battle plan. The Persians would have absolutely kicked the ever-loving shit out of the Greek navy because they had a much larger navy of their own, crewed by much more experienced sailors with much better ships, but the Persians were hit by not one, but two paranormal storms that wiped out more than half of their navy overnight. And even then, they managed to take it to the Greek navy. Imagine losing more than half your forces in a flash and still pounding your opposition. The Persians weren't in a position to absolutely crush the Greeks and win anymore, but the battle went way longer than it should have with such a devastating loss on the Persian side. So this is the Battle of Artemisium, and I want, to, I want you to try and imagine this ancient naval battle, because ancient naval engagements were crazy. You have to imagine hundreds of ships on each side in an area about the size of a harbour. Uh, this kind of fighting is up close and personal. It's not like the Battle of Midway where there's a hundred miles between ships. You're right up in each other's grills. And as you came into range with an enemy vessel, first you'd open up with a volley of arrows because you had archers on board. That was your ranged combat. And then as you got closer, you'd throw some javelins to try and take out anyone who was unfortunate enough to be on the top deck. And that went for both sides, this kind of exchange of missile weapons. The Greeks, not being as experienced on the water as the Persians, their battle doctrine revolved around trying to pull alongside an enemy ship and to try and board it. Greek soldiers were great on land, so they wanted to turn a sea battle into a land battle if they could. So they'd harpoon an enemy vessel and pull alongside it and lay down some gangplanks and try and board the ship. And when it worked... It was incredibly effective, because a Greek hoplite was a heavily armoured man-shaped tank. But the whole idea revolved around getting into position to board an enemy ship, and if it went wrong, it went very, very wrong, because people don't tend to be able to swim too well when they're wearing bronze hoplite armour. So it was kind of an all-or-nothing play. The Persians, on the other hand, they were all about ramming. While ships of the era had sails for getting out and about, once it came down to battle, they were powered by oars. They were man-powered. And a well-trained navy, like the Persians, they could get a fair bit of speed out of their ships once the oars started rowing. 
and on the front of each ship was a huge bronze or iron battering ram with a spike on it, just below the waterline. These ships could, and did, cleave enemy ships in half. So you'd get your trireme up to ramming speed, and hit an enemy amidships, cut them in half, go straight through them, and then onto the next ship. That was Persian battle doctrine on the seas. So the Battle of Artemisium was the Greeks trying to use the enclosed area of Artemisium to try and prevent the Persians from maneuvering properly and negating their ability to get up to ramming speed. That was basically the entire battle. And it was largely a stalemate for three days. The Greeks were able to defend this small position, and because the Persians had been wiped out by storms, they couldn't really push in and crush it like they'd hoped to. The exception was Artemisia of Halicarnassus. In the middle of all of this battle over three days, she was like Jaws. These sea battles were absolute chaos. Once everything kicked off, there was no real way to communicate between ships. Everything just turned into a white water washing machine filled with nails. There was no communication at all. There was just too much going on. Artemisia didn't have to worry about dealing with an entire navy. She only commanded five ships. She had her flagship, and the other four just followed what she did. And so they were able to dart between these huge engagements of dozens of ships, basically knifing enemy ships in the kidneys when their backs were turned and reaping an unholy number of kills on enemy vessels, just plucking them out of the water like jaws. And after three days of this, the Greeks gave up and retreated. And they retreated to a place called Salamis. And it is pronounced Salamis, even though it looks like Salamis. And as tempted as I am to do a recount of the Battle of Salamis, I'm going to have to go with Salamis. You might recognize the name Salamis because it's the most famous naval battle of all time. Except for maybe Jutland or Midway. So top three, definitely. The reason that Salamis is famous is because the smaller Greek navy that was there baited the Persian forces into a trap and won a great against-the-odds victory against the much bigger Persian navy, thanks to some roguish skullduggery on the part of an Athenian admiral by the name of Themistocles. And Themistocles, I will always point out, switched sides at the end of the war and died many years later a naturalized Persian, so as much as Greek history would like you to remember Themistocles as a Greek hero in this story, he went Persian. Themistocles was an Athenian admiral who was basically just a pirate who got swept up in the war and turned out to be pretty good at admiraling. And Themistocles was famous for having all of these tricks and ruses up his sleeve. He was all about slights and gambits. He was incredibly untrustworthy, but since all warfare is deception, that ended up working for him. I've heard Themistocles described as Han Solo, and I can't paint a better picture than that. So he's ancient Greek Han Solo. You like me because I'm a scoundrel. The Battle of Salamis was his idea. Salamis is a narrow pass which would negate the Persian numbers and allow a smaller Greek force to hold them off. And Themistocles positioned the Greek navy in this small pass, and he went to great lengths to sell the ruse that the Persians should charge into battle and wipe out the Greek navy. I'm not going to get into what Themistocles did, because this show isn't about him, and I want to save some ammunition for the future, but anyway, Salamis is a famous trap. It's a trap! 
but one of the few people to see through the trap before it happened, and try to warn the Persians, was Artemisia. How could they be jamming us if they don't know if we're coming? Xerxes was all gung-ho to take on this weak-looking Greek fleet and wipe them out for all time and then continue on land uncontested, and all of his admirals were all for this plan, but not Artemisia. She smelled a rat. She didn't like this situation. And she said to Xerxes, Oh, hold up. This looks like some trademark Themistocles fuckery. I don't know why Artemisia is Adele, but... Nah, I'm not going to do the Adele voice. So Artemisia says, hold up. Themistocles is up to something here. I don't think we should be attacking. I think it's a trap. And Xerxes says, I appreciate the input, but you've been outvoted by the rest of my admirals. We're going to attack. And that's when Artemisia sighs and rolls her eyes, and she goes into the battle she'd advised against to try and save the Persians from themselves. Accelerate to attack speed. Draw their fire away from the cruisers. At least, that's what Herodotus tells us. Plutarch, in his book titled Herodotus is Full of Shit, says that this never actually happened and that the only reason that Herodotus has it in his histories is because it's a great literary device with Artemisia playing the role of Cassandra, being able to give accurate prophecies but never being believed, which you got to admit is a great literary device and it's highly suspicious that it actually turned out like this. Seriously, Herodotus in his history has Artemisia saying things like, quote, the Greeks are much stronger than us on the sea, as men are stronger to women, end quote, which is a direct quote from his book, and it is both demonstrably untrue and absolutely not something Artemisia would have actually said because she was not a dumb shit. The Battle of Salamis kicks off, and it's just like the last battle I described, only in a slightly different place. So apply that here. So Artemisia and her small fleet of five ships were part of the fighting and they were kicking ass and taking names because Artemisia and her fleet were pure death on the water. But the rest of the Persian forces weren't doing so well. Despite Artemisia's best efforts, the battle was turning quickly against the Persians. It was going to be a Persian loss. Artemisia sees this and she displays some of her trademark logical sensibility. And she says, Fuck this. I told him it was a trap, and now we're trapped. There's no way I'm going to die because of some dickhead men. I'm out of here. And she and her fleet nope the fuck out of the battle. She decides to leave. And fair enough. Salamis is famous for being a great Persian defeat. So Artemisia jibes her ship, which is a 180 if you don't speak old-timey nautical, and she scampers the hell out of Salamis with her five ships but it's not easy to escape a battle when you're in the middle of said battle, especially not in an ancient naval battle. Remember what I said about chaos. Meanwhile, an entire wolf pack of Greek triremes recognized Artemisia's flagship, and they recognize her as the boss bitch of the waves, and they decide to give chase. You've got to do this. When you have a chance to take out the best admiral in the enemy army, You take out their best admiral. That's what you do. Look at what happened to Yamamoto. So they're chasing after Artemisia, but Artemisia has a head start and a better ship. They're not going to catch her. She's going to get away. And that's when an allied Persian ship begins to drift into her path. 
It wasn't intentional, they weren't blocking Artemisia's escape, it's just that in the chaos of the battle, and remember, Salamis is one of the most chaotic battles of all time, in all of this chaos, one of these Persian triremes just began to drift into the path of Artemisia's trireme, blocking her escape. And it looks like she's about to be caught by the pursuing Greeks, which would not have been smiles times for Artemisia and her crew. Except no. This is Artemisia of Halicarnassus we're talking about. She is the living avatar of cold, brutal logic. What does she do? With this Persian ship drifting in front of her? This allied ship? She orders ramming speed. That's what she does. And her ship cuts this allied Persian ship in twain and pretty much kills everyone on board. The Greeks that were chasing her watch this and they decide that they don't want any part of this crazy bitch, and they let her go. Either that, or they confused her for a friendly ship, depending on which version you're reading. So, take your pick with what you think is more awesome, remembering that Herodotus is absolutely full of shit, and you could say that Artemisia in this situation activated the hyperdrive and did the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs, and it has exactly the same amount of historical credibility as Herodotus. No choice, General Calrissian. Our cruisers can't repel firepower of that magnitude. Anyway, Artemisia gets out of the battle, and Artemisia goes up to Xerxes, the king of kings, and says, I told you so. Which is a really ballsy move, because Xerxes was not in a good mood after this disastrous battle, and he was the unchallenged king of the greatest empire on earth. And now, Artemisia is going up to him and saying, Told you. And Xerxes says, yes, yes, you did indeed tell me that that was going to happen. I concede that you were correct. Xerxes orders Artemisia, in an official act of admiralty, to escort his young sons safely back to the Persian Empire. Artemisia, I want you to take my sons, get them the hell out of here, and coincidentally get yourself the hell out of here as well. Xerxes, after the Battle of Salamis, had decided to retreat from Greece, and he decided that the safest place for his sons to retreat from the Greeks was in Artemisia's ship, and the safest thing for him to do, as the King of Kings, was to get the fuck away from Artemisia herself as quickly as possible, because hell hath no fury. The King of Kings was apparently quite frightened of the Queen of Halicarnassus. Artemisia's last official act in the war was escorting Xerxes' sons back to Persia, which is a pretty prestigious gig. And then, we don't hear any more about her. She disappears from history. Because all we have is Herodotus, and he spends the rest of his history sucking the dick of every Greek who claims to have been at any battle in the Greco-Persian Wars. So how much of it actually happened? Well, it's hard to say. I'm just a storyteller just like Herodotus. But I do prefer to live in a world where Artemisia of Halicarnassus was exactly as I've just described. The Doric Greek goddess of fuck around and find out.